So whenever there's a big data breach or an attack, I like to look at how long the attacker was on the network unnoticed. And estimates vary, with some security vendors claiming that the dwell time could be as low as five days with a ransomware attack, and others claiming it can be as high as 200 days or more in a much more sophisticated attack. So how does this even happen? If you're running edge detection, if you're scanning your networks, and if you're occasionally rebooting your servers, that should remove running malware. Yet the bad actors somehow return and remain persistent. Hence, we talk about advanced persistent threat. These APTs have somehow found a way to bypass most security tools, hence their persistence. So I thought it would be good to look into how this persistence might be achieved. Special coding tricks, stealth malware, magic, maybe. But it turns out there are services and tools running within Windows that, if they're misconfigured or mishandled, can actually help the bad actors. Perhaps these should be your first targets when pen testing. So in a moment, we'll hear how the bad actors can persist, and we'll learn how we can better detect these APTs earlier. I hope you'll stick around. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm talking about ways in which bad actors can manipulate legitimate tools and gain persistence on a site so they can steal data or encrypt it for ransom. In episode 49, I talked with Kyle Hensloven about living off the land, about bad actors not putting up their own tools, but using existing tools and then pivoting inside your network. In this episode, we're going deeper into this idea that you can use tools that are already on the system, particularly if they're misconfigured. For that, I turn to an expert on Windows. Paula Januszkiewicz, I'm the CEO of Secure and Secure Academy, also an MVP and a regional director. And uh, at the end, cybersecurity uh, architect, specialist, expert, and um, someone who basically enjoys uh, what, uh, what I do. Paula is a Microsoft MVP. Microsoft describes it as a global program of recognized technology experts and community leaders who actively support technical communities through unique, innovative, and consistent knowledge sharing. In other words, Microsoft has confirmed Paula's expert status. And Paula's company? That's the letter C with a QRE, Secure. So Secure, it's a company that I have established almost 15 years ago right now. And uh, I started only by myself. And right now we have a team that's almost 50. 
And uh, we deal with cybersecurity services. So basically, we deliver custom penetration tests. We do forensics incident response, but also in general cybersecurity uh, consulting, being on the good side and also on the bad side. And uh, Secure Academy, it is an educational part of Secure, where we have over uh, 40 custom trainings online and offline, and also the easier ones or the advanced ones. The ones that are happening regularly or the ones that are only happening once per year. So anything that we deliver there is, of course, devoted uh, to cybersecurity. Sector is Canada's largest information security conference, and it's held every year in Toronto. Paula gave a talk last October that was entitled Adventures in Underland, Uncommon Hackers' Persistency Methods and Countermeasures. I wanted to ask her more about that. In general, the idea of the of the talk at Sector was to show what are the ways how malware can simply be persistent or malicious actor can be persistent, uh, persistent in the infrastructure. And um, at the end, uh, of course, there are many conversations about points of entry. So that could happen, for example, through phishing, through things being misconfigured, through things being vulnerable. But also the very important part to pay attention to is how hackers actually stay in the infrastructure. And how is it possible that for so many days, because depending on which stats we look into, but usually it's around 200 days, IBM says so, FBI says so, and so on. Uh, hackers actually remain unnoticed. So what's wrong with our um, methodology for the discovery? And that is what was like this major flavor for the session. The bad actors can enter through phishing attacks, but the question is, where do they hide on your system after that? How do they achieve persistence? Often network systems are misconfigured and that leads to the breaches. At least, this is the common complaint I hear from pen testers. Configuration is, is an important part. And uh, one thing is, of course, just the general um, securing of the infrastructure. So what do we do to make sure that we are resistant against the different threats? So things like application whitelisting, starting with the simple things, ending up with privilege access management, making sure that we are monitoring anything that executes and not only processes, but also network connections, um, pipes and uh, WMI queries and all these things, for example, that, uh, for example, Sysmon uh, has on the list. Um, and um, that's one thing. But the second thing, of course, is in general, the capability to spot um, the event, connect the dots and um, being able to identify that all these activities that we see actually at the end make the attack. So obtaining user credentials or finding a flaw in authentication, that helps you get inside a network. Of course, once the bad actor gets inside your network, that's when the persistence begins. Well, that's one thing, uh, of course, um, good for the start. But uh, once you are there, uh, then you need to figure out the way uh, smarter um, or uh, less smarter to hide yourself. Uh, so that could be, for example, through uh, hiding services. So creating a service um, and setting up permissions to the service in a way that it's not visible uh, by uh, listing uh, by the vast majority of the tools. But again, it depends what tool do we use. 
Uh, on the other hand, it could be that that persistence might be through um, getting access to some kind of a data. Uh, also, it might be, for example, by hiding yourself in terms of permissions. So you can, for example, use either that G permissions, generic permissions, or you can also use the advanced permissions, which is not really hiding, but, but by the first look, when someone looks into uh, properties of the file or folder, then you're going to see that, for example, that group does not really have a read access, but actually it's read data, which is a granular um, advanced so-called permission uh, that only gives you actually the possibility to open a file and so on. So it's it's all about this little um, details that uh, make the persistence or hiding uh, eventually possible. Except there are a lot of little things like this. Yes, and that's what makes the job interesting. So given that we know these attack vectors, as a pen tester, I wonder if Paula and her team have any favorite go-tos, spots that they look for first when analyzing a system for the very first time. Uh, you know, I think um, it all depends on the tool that we use. But in general, when we think about this, like one thing to definitely start with, that's going to be uh, just to try outruns. And outruns, it's a sysinternals tool. It's uh, maybe, I would say, even an, quite an obvious choice. But if it's this first thing to check for, Alteron's immediately is going to give you a different nuances, different unusual situations on the spot. Of course, there's a way how you are able still to hide yourself, but that will um, at least allow you to find the low-hanging fruits. Sysinternals is a set of free utilities. Originally created by Bryce Cogswell and Mark Brusinovich, it was sold to Microsoft and rebranded as Windows Sysinternals in 2006. The Sysinternals suite includes AutoRuns utility, which provides a comprehensive view of auto-starting locations of any startup monitor and shows you what programs are configured to run during system boot or login, and when you should start various built-in Windows applications like Explorer and Media Players. It's comprehensive. Autoruns goes way beyond other auto-start utilities, and that's how it's supposed to work. But there are ways that bad actors can use these tools, created for good, to find running services that they can then leverage for bad. There are so many places that are allowing us to do it. Um, mainly, for example, anything really that auto-runs. Therefore, we've got an auto-runs tool from these internals that allows you to discover anything that's just out-running, so surviving the reboot. So it's going to be services. It's going to be, uh, for example, part of the parts of the win logon. It's going to be scheduled tasks that might be running um, just after your reboot. Uh, or it might be, for example, some different plugins even uh, that uh, you've got for the Outlook, so in general for Office or for the browser. Um, it might be also the parts of the registry that will load you things automatically. So there's so many places that actually are out running. But luckily for us, and that's a good news, absolute vast majority of these places, it's known and it's discovered by the tools. So it's just a matter whether we are allowing to run the code that we don't know. And we've got, for example, let's say a service that could be a malicious service that's going to be, of course, out running after the reboot. But if we will not allow to run the service or in general executable that's not digitally signed, or we're going to have a well-established monitoring, 
this will just not happen. But that's why I was saying that outruns is just like the first handy tool that we should reach um, in order to check basically what's out there outrunning. A lot of the attacks today are around gaining user credentials. Why? Well, why hack your way in through a complicated backdoor method when you can just waltz right in the front door as a fully credentialed user and then escalate individual privileges from there? Sometimes, of course, uh, the matter of access might be due to misconfiguration. Um, it might be through to the connection of the different different situations. Yeah? So user might be, let's say, just a user, but at the same time, user might have a right access to the folder where the service is running and the service is going to be running as a local system. So hacker is able through misconfiguration, able to escalate to a local system and then maybe extract hashes. And maybe someone is not using labs or maybe they are. So they are randomizing administrator's passwords or not. So it's, I look, when I look, at these kind of possibilities also for persistence i always imagine like a um, decision tree so there's a like you can do this or that and when you do this you can do that and that so it, it's all about skills at the end and uh, knowledge of a hacker or someone that's trying to reveal hacker steps in her talk paula cites some of the crazy examples of potential abuse she's seen in her years of pen testing for example, there's the case where granting permissions to a file is actually pretty complicated. In other words, there are instances where granting access and then seeking to deny that access later results in the user actually retaining their access. Here's where deny doesn't necessarily mean deny. Yeah, so that's actually a very nice concept that I really like because um, when, when you've got a, in, in simple words, when you've got a item so an object so that could be file or folder uh, let's say and uh, when you go to the properties you see a simple window that's going to show you that administrators users this group that group has that kind of an access and um question is that when for example you have a on one item even uh, coming from inheritance two types of permissions which is allow and deny a uh, question would be what is the effective access that we can guess from that window that users gonna have and most of the people answer that it's gonna be deny because of the previously gained knowledge the deny takes precedence but the thing is and that's uh, what i'm really like what i really like to do is to break this little i would call it a little myth um because uh, that's actually not true so in windows allow and deny they are on the same level it's just a matter of the order and that is very nicely seen when you display for example a security descriptor so the sd and when you go for example um you went to powershell and you do get acl to the object pipe format list you're gonna see in the bottom of the output the sddl so the security descriptor definition language and over there it's just a piece of text it's a flat one-liner that describes you um, what are the permissions for the for the folder uh, or file, and then you are able to evaluate it from left to right, and whatever is on the left side overrides whatever it's on the right side, and if the allow is going to be before deny, then allow is going to simply overwrite deny. So if there's like a direct battle allow against deny, um, it's not the deny that actually wins. It's uh, simply depending on the order. 
Given this is known, is there a recognized mitigation for that? Well, um, there there are good practices that definitely we should follow. Like, for example, one of that should be um, to avoid deny. <laughs> as simple as this. So uh, the, the purer it becomes, uh, the better is to predict what's going to happen next. And uh, of course, it's not that ideal in the enterprise because if you got a, let's say, file server and uh, that file server has its own history and you are taking these files and you are moving them to the other structure, then some of the things might be inherited. And then at the end, there's a quite of a mix that happens um, after that kind of operations depends of course how we're going to do it so one thing is going to be avoid denied another one is going to be to rather focus uh, when you assign permissions on role-based access so it's it's better to not to create a security group let's say hr and say everybody from hr can do it but anna john this person that person cannot Uh, but rather we should do it in a way that we create a group which says all the people that can access that item. And then we add whoever we think is supposed to be there. It's not HR. It's all the people that's supposed to have access to that item. And then whoever is not part of the group just simply does not have access uh, to that item. And uh, of course, it's very hard to implement and it's hard to manage. But that kind of a role-based access is the one that uh, can nicely mitigate issues that we are talking about. Another example from her talk is one involving an unquoted service path. The danger here is you have spaces in the command line, and the order of operations becomes very important. And how those spaces get filled and executed, well, that's done by default. Yeah, that's very cool. Uh, that's unquoted a service path, and uh, basically, um, service path should be quoted, and uh, it should be quoted in quotes because um, whenever we are loading the service executable, the SCM, so the uh, loader for the services, searches first uh, for the first um, part um, till that there's a space sign. So let me. Put it, put it maybe from the other side. If there is a path that is like C program space files, and then you've got service space um, access, and then you've got at the end services.exe or file.exe, just to make it more purer, then that file.exe, uh, it's obviously the final executable that should be loaded. But unfortunately, when that path that we just mentioned, it's not in quotes, what the service loader is going to do, it's going to first reach for the C program. And normally we know it's program files, but it's going to actually go to the program and it's going to add exe to it. And it's going to try to load and search for C program.exe. Even though it sounds quite silly, but that's unfortunately how it is. And if it doesn't find program.exe, then it's going to go to the program files. And then it's going to go to the service. And we said service access. So in this case, it's going gonna, it's gonna to search for service.exe. And if it will not find it, then it's going to go to the my file or file.exe. So if the service path would be in quote, then it will go directly to the file.exe instead of searching for cprogram.exe. That's why quite often malware is actually called program.exe. And we might be wondering where it comes from. It actually comes from that uh, case with the service. Again, are there legitimate reasons for having someone do that? I mean, it seems like Microsoft or somebody might have addressed this well-known flaw at some point in time. 
Perhaps there's a coding reason why they needed that. I don't know the reason for that one, but it's a known thing. And uh, should that be addressed? Definitely. On the other hand, it's a kind of like, you know, this little thing that it's easy to fix. So uh, <laughs> I believe that there are like uh, some higher priorities than that. But definitely, uh, like if we are thinking about making system perfect, then that should be one of the things to be addressed. So this should be easy to fix. But given that it's not high up on Microsoft's to-do list, then it's a matter of teaching people that they need to put this in quotes and that would mitigate some of the problems that we just discussed. You know, the, the thing is that this is such a such a tiny thing that sometimes by administering, managing enterprise environment, that might just get lost in the whole space of more serious tasks that we have to do. And um, within, our, for example, our academy, when we teach um, usually during the first day, these kind of principles, what does it mean to have a secure operating system? Quite often we see that someone has like 20 years of experience working in IT or even sometimes in security, but they don't know that. And um, of course we are wondering why this is the case. And uh, that's just because it's not uh, in the books. True. A lot of InfoSec knowledge is either tribal, meaning it's passed on from one person to another, or it can be found in books. A lot of us don't have computer science degrees. So if you're like me, we learned what we know either in a book or from direct experience. To Paula's point, there's a lot of direct experience yet to be documented in books for the future. So we can find it, of course, in some presentations, in our in a podcast like this, and so on. But it's not really like an official knowledge that's served out there that says you should have a strong password. It's it's it should be served in a similar way. It's just that it's a very tiny detail that um, probably it's hard to put through every single presentation, every single article, and so on. Just as a tool such as those provided in Windows Sys internals can be used both ways, information itself can be used both ways. Such as hearing how the unquoted service patch, a bad actor might hear this podcast and be thinking, hmm, they can use that the next time if they didn't already use it in the past. Then again, these aren't secrets. You can Google them as well as I can. All these things uh, can be always used in, in both ways. Pentester, it's uh, technically a person that does similar things to the hacker, of course, with a different goals, sometimes in a different ways. But the but at the end, vast majority of the steps, um, depending on the situation, it's rather similar. And um, the same story with our tools, for example. Some of our tools are actually recognized by uh, various antivirus services, not because they contain a virus, but because it's considered to be a hacking tool, which we technically use for our pentest, but could that be used in the wrong way, in the wrong hands? Absolutely. In addition to the tools from Microsoft and others, pen testers, well, they create their own set of tools. Paulo's company, Secure, has its own set. Secure has offered some of their own proprietary tools to the public for other pen testers to use. And they have their own versions of popular tools such as Mimikatz. 
Yeah, so Mimikatsu, of course, is originally written by Benjamin Delby. And also with cooperation um, with Benjamin, we created our own version of Mimikatsu, which has some extensions. So that's one thing. But uh, at the end, uh, we have actually over 200 tools that we have in-house. Not everything we share in public. Um, some of the things we, we do because we think it's it's very useful for the community to use it. But some of the things, it's uh, scripts, it's some very particular tools in a particular situation and so on. So it's a historically grown know-how that we use uh, during the pandas. Actually, I think one of our favorites, it's going to be a, CQ, a secrets dumper. It's historically also um, one of the oldest tools. And it's written by our developer, uh, Michał Grzegorzewski. And uh, basically, uh, that tool can do a bunch of things. The one thing is that it can just simply extract the password from the service accounts which today does not sound very outstanding, but let's say 10 years ago, that was quite useful and relatively rare. But also the tool is very useful because it has multiple functions. Like for example, it can display you a boot key, which you get from the system high from the registry. And that the boot key you can use to extract the passwords from the services offline, as well as hashes, as well as different values that operating system uses for as a secret. And that tool we find extremely useful also for um, different cryptographic information, why we need to technically uh, decrypt something, like for example, uh, decrypt the database, uh, or get the hashes, or get the secret um, for the group managed service accounts, and th these kind of things. Another example from Paula's talk is using a way to get the certificate off of a login page and then just simply adding the certificate to the browser page as a cookie. So I was playing um, during the presentation with two certificate or um, yeah, certificate related demos. One of them was actually with the use of a publicly available tool, which is uh, called Evil Jinx. And um, it is very actually easy to deliver because uh, Evil Jinx um, allows us to replicate the website of the login for the Office 365. And uh, we present it somehow through the phishing activity to the user. So you send a phishing email. It has to go come through this. And then the user clicks, for example, to the website. For example, when we are not available on Teams, we get an email saying, hey, someone wanted to contact you on Teams, and we see that part of the message. So someone clicks on that. And then we are taking that person to the fake website um, to the fake website that looks like an um, Office 365 logo. After that, we collect all the information. Also, depending on the situation, we collect information within the multi-factor authentication. And uh, we then later collect the user's cookie and then we redirect the user to the original website. But now having a user cookie, what we are able to do, we can submit it um, submitted on the to the browser, and this is how we are able to log in uh, to the to the website. So this is an attack that um, uses multiple factors over there. One thing is that, of course, the cookie that we have a possibility to collect, and the second part is that the user, of course, has to has to be interactive with us. So um, this is an attack for the multi-factor authentication. And yet another example is extracting that certificate from a domain controller. So, so it could be could be also one of my favorite subjects that is that I was also presenting at the keynote, 
that is related with the um, data protection API. So that, that was the um, situation when I was extracting the certificate uh, from the domain controller, uh, allowing us to permanently, um, till we literally wipe the domain from the earth uh, to decrypt uh, various uh, cryptographic information that's uh, stored or created by users and um and one of the one of the things around that is that this is a fact and we have to deal with this mm. and uh through that we have a complete forever persistence in the infrastructure to get access to the cryptographic blobs but um, it all it's all a matter of who can execute what kind of software and with what kind of privileges. Therefore, monitoring what's executing in our organization and controlling, seriously controlling that privilege access and who is allowed to log on where and for what is actually something that um, we need to definitely step towards to. Wait, you can gain persistence to a domain? Absolutely, in many different ways, of course. But one of the um, ways I was describing was through extracting the certificate, um, which we call actually a backup private key. And that's something that uh, our team, uh, as, as far as we know, uh, the first in the world, uh, did the full reverse engineering of the cryptographic API, so the data protection API in Windows. And by extracting that certificate from the domain, you get a persistence that you really cannot cancel. And um, to the whole cryptographic data of all of the users, the only way to cancel the persistence, uh, if you really want to cancel it, is just to set up a new domain from the scratch. Wow, that's pretty extreme. Spin up a new domain periodically just so you can be sure that no one retains the certificates. Pretty drastic, I know. Considering that uh, we can already say that, let's say, every domain has been already compromised. And I really like to say that because if there is one person once that had some kind of a privileged access to the domain in times when monitoring wasn't that popular, so let's say five, six years ago, or even two, three years ago, yeah, then um, basically this person could have already extracted certificate. So simply we cannot trust the on-prem domain that has been once accessed by a privileged, uncontrolled user. That's pretty basic. If someone has super admin rights, once they leave, you really should scrub down the network. Not that they would actually act maliciously after they left, but rather so you don't have someone taking over their dormant account. The rest is just the monitoring and prevention to do the, uh, to do the, to do the math. <laughs> In episode 35, Paula shared a great story about a ransomware attack where the company paid, but the decryptor, well, it didn't work on all the files. So Paula and her team had to do technical support for the decryptor. They had to figure out why it wasn't working and get it fixed so that they could release the files that otherwise would have remained encrypted. I was wondering, does she have any other stories like that? Uh, uh, actually, I would say that 
almost every week there's some kind of a story that happens within our team. Maybe not with that kind of a scale, like I was presenting at the keynote, because actually that's truly one of my favorite projects um, right now. Uh, but um, there, there were many, many cases like this. For example, we had a case with um, our customer um, that... Um, it's it's not 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 that much with details, uh, because it's a re relatively fresh case. But we had a case of the customer that actually was buying software, um, and using software from the software vendor, and uh, I would say kind of classic, but also quite exciting. And then it appeared that um, that software was uh, just broken in the process. So again, it's a vendor problem. And uh, we analyzed um, that situation because we've been quite deep inside. And then it appeared that uh, there's actually too many people that on the vendor side that had access to that certificate. So it was not really maybe that much related with the hackers attacking a vendor or whether vendor uh, being hooked into the customer's network. So Mm, very strange case mm. uh, ongoing, but um, but also showing that um, we need to somehow uh, control um, obviously the software that we are using uh, from the vendors, not necessarily completely trust them, um, be able to verify their process. We all know that it's not always possible, but if we again have a well-established monitoring on our side, and if we monitor privilege access, then even though the that kind of a threat is going to be brought through the vendor, we can still uh, minimize the the impact that that kind of software could have. It's not an easy case because it's uh, every organization has its own flavors, like this one, for example, but, um, but definitely very interesting uh, story to deal with and not solved yet. Persistence doesn't just apply to the bad actors. Persistence also applies to the good actors as well. So given that you've got these solutions, you still need a human. You need a pen tester to come in. And is there any sort of guidance around using a pen tester? Like how often should you run a pen test and when? So at the end, um, at the end, pen test, it's designed to last certain amount of days. And ideally for the organization um, and, and for the sake of the project, it's going to be to run a uh, the pentas endlessly so that you are regularly tested upon any change um, upon any a certain time period so if for example six months passes just as a control pentas you do the check but of course I'm saying what would be nice um, to, to make sure that we are all the time continuously spotting all the different misconfigurations, holes that potentially could appear because someone did something suddenly in the infrastructure. But of course, this is not happening. That's why that kind of activity even uh, got renamed a little bit. And we call it more of a threat hunting. And organizations, every certain time, um, it's, it's a relatively new type of a service. Um, they actually do the threat hunting. One thing is to check uh, and for the, with independent type of service, what kind of holes are there, whether the hackers can get in and so on. But the second part, it's to focus more on the review of the systems that are already there 
fully privileged to verify whether there is possible, possibly some kind of a leftover after the attack or maybe there's an attack going on. So these two activities are of a similar kind, but um, they have a different goals. So should everyone be running threat hunting exercises now or should we still stick with the pen tests? It's still kind of like pen testing because organizations are more focusing on what can happen from the outside. Hmm. And if it's about inside, they somehow manage it. It's not perfect, of course. And I think that uh, threat hunting in general should be a part of the mandatory activity for every organization, for example, every year. But of course, it's all a matter of budget. So if you got a choice, what would you choose? Whether just to clarify whether you can be hacked from the outside or maybe even from the inside hmm. to spot all these kind of low-hanging fruits um, versus uh, just to review all of the servers, searching for potential signs of activity, which might not even have happened. Yeah. So long story short, Pentest, uh, um, if you got a choice, it's more efficient uh, for the money that you need to spend within a year time. Additionally, Paula recommends that you monitor your services and registry and make sure all that stuff doesn't get abused. There, there are many good practices obviously out there, but the major generic focus is on monitoring identity in the organization, monitoring what executes, preventing the unknown stuff from executing, and also connecting the dots, so correlating different events, and then classifying them as attacks, as threats, and then having an appropriate reaction to it. Yeah, so that that's kind of a big role of a CM systems. That's kind of a big role of um, any kind of like a whitelisting solutions, smart ones. And uh, that, that's something that it doesn't really solve the problem, but it minimizes the risk to the point that we just stop looking interesting uh, for hacker and uh, we are just becoming a waste of time and then just hacker is going to choose someone else. That's one of the ma major goals, I would say. I'd really like to thank Paula for her second appearance on The Hacker Mind. If you missed her talk at Sector in October 2022, Paula will be appearing in April 2023 at the RSA conference in San Francisco. I encourage you to go and see her live. Also, as I said, you should check out episode 35, where Paula talks about her digital forensics experience. Want more? Check out Secure's Academy and learn more about information security. Really, we're all here to help each other learn about information security. Take advantage of these tools. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast, tell a friend. I bet there are others who like commercial-free narrative infosec podcasts. I have so many stories about hackers who are making a positive difference in the world. And be sure to check out Error Code, my new podcast that focuses on IoT and embedded security. Error Code is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon or at robertvamosi on Twitter. And tell me what you like and even what you don't. The Hacker Mind is brought to you commercial-free by For All Secure. For The Hacker Mind, I'm Robert Famosi. <laughs>